0: Welcome to Your Digital Reputation. Here's your host, Roger Christie.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us. My name's Roger Christie, founder of digital reputation advisory firm Propel. And today we're asking, can you balance personal values and professional interests online? It's a really tough question. While organisations are paying far more attention to shareholder and stakeholder capital these days, digital makes things even more complex, particularly for individuals who, as we know on this podcast, they're expected to speak up and pretty much everything you've ever said or done can now be found on Google. So how can leaders uphold their values, uphold their integrity and uphold their reputation when it comes to balancing personal and professional interests online? Well, to help us wade through this complex issue, I'm thrilled to be joined by Emma Pocock, CEO of Frontrunners, an organisation that supports athletes in engaging with the climate and environmental challenges facing all of us. Emma has a ton of experience working alongside her partner, former Wallaby captain and now senator for the ACT, David Pocock, on various projects and building a public profile for good through sport particularly around conservation, climate change and marriage equality. And she's an inaugural board member of Footy for Climate. So, Emma Pocock, thank you so much for joining us on the Your Digital Reputation podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. Great to be here.
1: No, it's an absolute pleasure for me. And I'm really thankful you're on the show, Emma, because, and I think we should make things really clear right from the outset. No, you're not sitting in a role like me, advising leaders and and comms experts on how to manage digital reputation. But when it comes to online choices and actions, I reckon, honestly, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more visible and more scrutinized cohort than elite athletes. And and that's the perspective that I'm keen to tap in today and explore with you around, you know, how do you work with high-profile clients in a highly politicized issues that you're often dealing with? Examples that I know that our listeners are going to learn a lot from. So if it's okay with you, I want to kick off by asking, you know, How tough is this whole digital reputation challenge for athletes today?
0: Yeah, it's so fascinating. And I'm not sure how much your listeners will be familiar with the challenges facing athletes versus, um, I guess, leaders in other fields. But with the rise of social media, we're seeing such a change in the sporting landscape. A couple of generations ago, and and even at the start of, of Dave, my partner's career, social media didn't really exist. So all of an athlete's access to their fans, to the wider public, was mediated through their employers, through the clubs, through the governing bodies, through the media outlets that they had partnerships with. they had now having that direct access to their fans through their social media platforms, and that's creating a lot of risk, which I guess is the thing that you really hone in on and focus on, but it's also creating a huge amount of opportunity and I think we're starting to see, particularly as Gen Z start to filter through into the professional athlete space, you know, those kind of true digital natives, a lot of interest in exercising the opportunities that come with that. But obviously that comes with a whole stack of, of risk as well. And that risk is being felt by the athletes, but also by their employers who now are managing a cohort of individuals who have their own platforms their own way to access their fans. Now
1: that's that's a really interesting point Emma that I'm keen to pick up on that idea of direct access and risk because I think that you know as you say there are differences between athletes and leaders and executives and directors, whoever it might be at the helm of organisations today, there are differences, of course. But what I find interesting about that, that same dynamic is a challenge across the different sectors, the, the business landscape that we have today. Every leader is being drawn into conversations by audiences, by stakeholders who expect them to speak up. Has that always been a challenge for athletes and the digital environment has only accelerated that? How do you see that dynamic of direct access equaling risk.
0: I mean, there are so many rich examples throughout history of athletes using their platform to talk about things that they care about, from Muhammad Ali protesting the war in Vietnam to the Wallabies who boycotted the Springboks Tour of Australia during apartheid. But I think it has definitely shifted in an age of social media, but also as kind of our culture more broadly is changing and people are becoming more aware of issues that are affecting so many people. It's an interesting question and I guess where I would tease out a distinction between some of the kind of corporate leaders that you work with and athletes is that that athletes aren't leading the organizations that they work for. I mean a better comparison would be if I'm the CEO of an organization, it would be like some of my staff wanting to speak out about something publicly and having a massive platform to do that. So I guess there is that bit of a distinction there and that's one of the things that makes it complex is that athletes are the ones that have the followers but they often aren't running the businesses and often don't have that direct connection to the commercial realities of the business. And so that's where I think there can be some real complexity for athletes and and for their employers, for the companies that are running these sports teams.
1: But you know, this is exactly why I was so keen to have this conversation, because as you've just explained that, which is a beautiful description of the differences, I firmly believe, organizations are going down that exact same path and what's interesting about the whole athlete to team or or body that they're they're a part of what's interesting about that dynamic is that they have been the prized assets both on the field or in the pool whatever it is they're the ones who attract attention and they're also the ones away from the track or away from the pool, or the field, that are also attracting attention, buzz, fandom, all these sorts of things. And I think if you flip that around now and look at it through the lens of corporates, traditionally, it was only the top of the tree that was seen, only the top of the tree that was visible, only the, the most senior authority or authorities in an organisation that was given the platform to speak we're seeing that completely broken down. And in fact, our advice to clients when we talk to them is your people are an asset and they should be given that opportunity to speak up. They should be trusted and empowered in the same way that ideally they're trusted and empowered when they sign an employment contract. They should be entrusted and empowered to act and and participate and be active online. And so I'm I'm hopeful that there are some savvy organisations out there who are looking at dynamics and models a bit like the sporting world and saying these people who are part of teams, if we can call them that, athletes, these people who are part of teams are no different to our people today. They can be voices, they can be advocates and they can be people who go out there and engage the community how can we help them to make smart choices? A bit of a prediction, but is that a fair representation of where corporations are heading?
0: It's, it's complex, isn't it? Because some, for lots of businesses, the values that their employees, and, and in my case, you know, athletes want to talk about that, aren't expressly to do with the day-to-day product that that company is selling. In the instance of my kind of work situation, that's televised sport. And so how do you balance that? And what do you do when you have an employee whose views don't accord with those of the organisation? How do you create space for people to share their views, express themselves, have all those rights? What are the limitations of that? Where should those boundaries be? And in the case of sport, you know, it's this kind of very reciprocal, but a relationship that's not often talked about where... The athletes are, as you rightly identified, uh, the asset that the sport is built upon, but they are also employees. So it's kind of a complicated uh, relationship there. And if you want to create space for athletes to be able to talk about things that maybe accord with the values of the organisation, what happens when they don't? And how do you bridge that tension and, and do that really effectively and in a way it takes into account the outcomes that the organisation wants, but balancing that against the kind of human rights, I guess, of the employee.
1: And it's it's a conversation that's playing out while you've got an audience there that is hungry for content, that is hungry for for comment, that is hungry for views and opinions of the people that they often idolise. Mm. And that's what's really interesting about this is that whether we like it or not, it's complex and it's playing out and we don't have an answer but an answer is going to be needed. And at least dialogue is going to be needed between athletes or employees and institutions that they're representing. And I think the way you've described it, again, I'd encourage organisations to look at the way they're doing things. Is there an open dialogue between their employees and those further up the, the tree in terms of senior leadership positions? Is there an open dialogue around how We represent ourselves as a a people, as a body um, in the community, whether that's online or offline, and how do we have open discussions in the appropriate forum but open discussions around values and culture and the things that we stand for so that there isn't this kind of explosion of, of risk at some point because someone speaks out of school. I feel like what you're saying is that, you know, digital has made this more urgent and more complex and I think people should take learnings from the sporting world and apply it to the corporate world. Because yes, sure, we're not all celebrities working within organisations. We don't attract that sort of attention. But at the same time, there is a heightened desire from organisations to harness their employees, to be ambassadors for their organisation. What comes along with that is the risk and the need to ensure education and to ensure proper support structures are in place so that smart decisions are made. So maybe on that note, Emma, Where do things break down? Whether that's the athlete or the the organisation, where do people most commonly get into trouble given this dynamic?
0: I've been thinking about this a lot recently. And I think the challenge that arises is where there's a lack of clarity between the two kind of parties. So if you think about it as the athlete or employee versus the administration or the employer uh, where they're out of alignment and the conversations not being had internally, and so where it can become really tricky is when that conflict between those two—and I don't use it in the sense of like it's an argument, but a difference in views—it is happening in the public domain, uh, and so obviously that creates a whole lot more risk, both to the brand and the and the reputation of all the parties involved, but also to the likelihood of it being resolved in a really effective way that brings everyone along and that's the tricky thing I think for athletes they're being exposed to so much media all the time you know they're getting put up for press conferences they're being expected to post regularly on social media Um, that's part of building their brand now they're expected to have views on things and so there's just so many opportunities for them to have to speak about things that they may feel really passionately about but they might be new to thinking about or feeling their way towards where they want to end up and I think that's something that often gets lost in the debate that we have about sports stars and their kind of personal, political, ethical views is that it's a group of young people that we're talking about who are sort of feeling their way into what they think about the world and we're very quick to judge them for those views or be really hard on them if they don't have the perfect answer. But on the flip side, you know, we have this amazing kind of evolution where I'm working now more and more with Gen Z athletes and Gen Z colleagues, and they just have these amazing, sophisticated views of the world. So, you know, there's so much going on in this space that has the potential for things to go quite badly. Uh, but also to go really well. So I think that there's this big gap in the sporting landscape, and I'm sure you encounter this a lot in your other work, where people have the amazing capacity to be great spokespeople and the things that they care about, but they don't get to realise those opportunities. So it kind of goes both ways. There's a risk when it happens and there's a risk that it's not happening.
1: No, absolutely right. And there's strong parallels there as well. I think one of the classic examples that we see from corporate Australia is there'll be an organisation that wants to tell a story. And the classic example around this is um, diversity and inclusion. And an organisation wants to tell a story because it is something that they connect or embody as part of their values and that's each organization's prerogative. But they're telling the stories of their people rather than allowing their people to have a voice and tell their own story. And so what you end up seeing is this somewhat generic and, and watered-down version of what could otherwise be a really powerful and personal story, something that would resonate with the other person you know, sitting on the other side of the screen or flipping through their smartphone that opportunity to connect is lost because we're forcing messages through the brand, through the entity, rather than allowing the individual to speak up. And I think that there's, you know, the the more extreme versions of that is where organizations actually tell people, you know what, it's safer for us collectively if you guys just keep quiet. And I don't think that's right because I think what you're saying there about the importance of that dialogue that problem solving and stress testing and kind of grappling with issues in the appropriate forum is a really constructive process to understand where both parties stand. Yeah, I
0: think that's such a great way of putting it and I know when when I'm working with athletes and, and even when I was working with Dave before he retired from rugby, one of the things we'd often talk about is how do you tell your own story and if you don't have a story to tell here get out the way or well, don't go yet, you know, take your time. I spend a lot of time actually advising athletes not to do things because they're not ready yet and I think audiences now are just so hyper-aware to authenticity, which is I think what you're kind of getting at there is that if the story is told through the lens of the brand rather than through the person who's experienced it, It loses something in its sincerity, and I think we're rightly tuned into that. We've got a really high level of literacy as a culture now around being sold things, and we don't want to be sold things anymore. We want to be part of something, but that's something that that sport hasn't really worked out how to fully realise yet. One of the things that's really highlighting that is the rise of women's sport. Here is a group of incredible athletes who've had to work really hard to even have the chance to participate and they are such powerful messengers with such great stories to tell and often we're actually missing the chance to create platforms to allow them to tell their stories. Uh, I have a kind of real-life example of this as an athlete that I've worked with who I won't mention the specifics of but they were doing a Mm -hmm. campaign that was challenging traditional notions of masculinity and the brand that they were working with on this was really excited about doing that and created this beautiful piece of content. But in the final cut, the watermark of the brand was the whole way through the piece of content. And we ended up saying to them, you know, we'll give back the money. This isn't what we signed up for. Fine to put the brand at the end of the piece of content. But if you have it throughout, it just looks like an ad. It it loses all the power in the storytelling. And eventually the brand said, you know what, actually, yes, we agree with you. We're going to just have, have the kind of brand piece at the end of the piece of content. And I think we're going to see more and more of that where what brands end up doing with those sponsorship relationships is actually allowing those platforms, the storytelling platforms to exist. And athletes have such great stories to tell. So I think, those kinds of outcomes where we actually create those spaces for those stories to be told is is a net positive for brands who are wanting to get that work done but also for athletes who have these great stories to tell.
1: Absolutely right. And I would argue there are so many stories out there that are great stories that, that can be told and can be heard. Uh, you know, your average employee probably thinks, well, what have I got to say? Um, I can't contribute something that's on the same level as a as an elite athlete. And fair enough, we're not we don't all live as exciting lives as that in terms of traveling the world and and competing at our physical peak. But at the same time. Our stories are our own and they will resonate with others like us. And I think that's the point here is it is important for those stories to be told and it's important to then create an environment and a set of parameters or guidelines for people to ensure that they know what their rights and responsibilities are online. We talk about social media policy and education and and scenario planning with people, leaders and staff to ensure that they feel equipped. I'm also interested, you talked about that example before, which is a really interesting one with the, the video and the brand Watermark. We've seen you know, plenty of very public examples. You've mentioned one there. One of the ones that well, everyone will probably be aware of, obviously, with Hancock prospecting and Netball Australia and some of the challenges there, we saw uh, Sebastian Vettel overseas getting trolled online about his attitudes and, and beliefs around climate change before he ultimately you know, cited that reason for retiring from F1 last year, and even closer to home, the Australian men's cricket captain, uh, Pat Cummins, he quit as an ambassador for a major sponsor linked to that same climate concern. When you are drawn into a conversation, when you are drawn into a conflict because audiences are expecting you to speak up, what should people do, In particularly in high-profile positions? What advice do you give them on how to respond?
0: Yeah, this is one of the kind of thorniest questions I think that that exists it's one thing as an individual to be speaking up about something that you care about and your employer not necessarily liking that it's another thing being expected to represent values that don't accord with your own and we've seen other examples of that players from the Manly Seagulls who didn't want to wear the pride jersey we've seen that in the AFLW as well and it is really tricky and i think that there is a real responsibility that falls on organizations who are taking positions on issues that go beyond the particular circumstances of their organization to really help bring their employees along with them. If you want to take a stand as an organization on an on an issue, then you have a responsibility to ensure that your staff have the opportunity to actually get across that, to understand why it matters to the community, but also to your business. And to do that kind of deep work of thinking through how to create spaces for people to ask questions without recourse. And I think that that's a really powerful thing that you can do as an organisation. I think if as an organisation you want to align yourself with certain values, you actually have a responsibility to do that work internally before or at the same time as you're doing the work publicly. I think we've seen in the last, I guess, like a month, maybe six weeks football, soccer in Australia come out and make clear their plans around a Pride round, but that they are actually taking this really beautiful approach to that where clubs are able to start wherever they're at. That might be all guns blazing, wearing the jersey, doing lots of promotional stuff around it, or it might be running an internal education session for their playing group and the staff in the business side. And I think that's how we make progress. It's not by saying everyone has to get to this ultimate destination, but by saying where are we actually at and how do we build on that if this is something that we really value as an organisation? How do we bring everyone along with us? And, yeah, I think it's a real challenge, but I think it's one that we have to take seriously. And if you want to be a values-based organisation, then you have to do the work.
1: Yeah. And I think it also starts, doesn't it, by ensuring that you don't treat your people like resources to be used and expended, but instead appreciate that people are people and understanding them and creating a dialogue with them to work towards a place that is mutually beneficial. And I think that that is one of the traps that organisations fall into in this social media age is, well, hang on, you're a mouthpiece. Your resource that I can use to get my message across as opposed to working in collaborative partnership. If you can shift that mindset, start a dialogue, put education at the core of that on both sides, mm-hmm. people and corporations, then you're only going to get a better outcome. Um, one of the things, Emma, that I know you've worked closely on and something I'm a huge supporter of is this idea of a digital coalition. Now, they're my words, not yours, but it's something that we've talked with um, Brunswick's Craig Mullaney on the podcast before. This idea where leaders and, and staff, they work in partnership online, even across traditional borders like competitors, for example, to increase the impact of their message and protect their reputation. Telstra's executive team is a great example of this, as are several of the government clients that we work with. This idea that, when you join forces when you work together rather than individually online you're actually increasing your impact and mitigating risk so with that in mind perhaps could you give our listeners an overview of the cool down initiative that you led and maybe why it worked and the impact that it's it's had
0: yeah thanks for asking about it such a fun project that we got to work on. So at the beginning of 2021, we started having some conversations with some athletes, retired athletes, who were saying that they'd really like to find a way to have an impact on Australia's climate policy ahead of the big conference of the parties, the big climate conference that was happening in Glasgow 2021, we still had the Morrison government who were kind of saying that they didn't want to make any firm climate commitments in terms of net zero targets for Australia. And there was a lot of talk happening about whether we were going to get an increased uh, climate commitment, whether we were going to take something more ambitious to that COP. And so we thought, okay, well, we'll just (laughs) set up a small online petition that a couple of athletes can sign and we'll do our little bit in contributing toward the push toward Australia developing a more ambitious climate commitment. At that stage, we were lagging behind the the rest of the developed world. We were kind of a pariah on the world stage when it came to our international commitments. And so we put together this open letter calling on the government to lift our climate ambition. We use this really beautiful language around sport and protecting the things that we love as athletes, as people from the sporting community And our goal was to get two dozen retired athletes to sign it. We thought if we could have 24 retired athletes sign this, that would be, you know, like brilliant work. And we started kind of sending it around and it was all private at this stage, you know, we were sending it around on Instagram DMs, just flagging it with a few people to see if they were interested. And within I think probably seven or eight days we had over 300 people sign the letter, 300 professional athletes signed the letter. No longer was it just retired athletes who we had pitched it at because we thought current athletes would find it too risky to participate in. We had Mick Fanning, Buddy Franklin, the Campbell sisters, all these incredible athletes sign up to this open letter. And by the time we kind of stopped keeping track, we had almost 500 athletes from over 40 sports sign on, including over 100 current AFL players, which was quite remarkable. And what it kind of said to us was that we had massively underestimated the enthusiasm from athletes for public advocacy on climate action, but that the barriers to action had been really significant. And as soon as we created a really straightforward, easy pathway for them to say, yep, this is something that I care about they were more than willing to get on board, to jump in, and to be part of, as you said, this kind of digital coalition. And there was something I think that was really powerful in that the contained but collective nature of what the ask was. So we weren't asking people to commit to their own personal climate action plan. We weren't asking them to lobby their employers. We were asking them to sign on to a letter saying that we would really like Australia to be a leader on this. And that was a message that resonated really strongly with athletes. I mean, athletes are used to punching above, Australian athletes are used to punching above their weight on the world stage. We massively overperform as a country. And so it was something that resonated, I think, really strongly with that particular audience and really embolden us as an organization to say, actually, you know what, athletes are ready. And so in the wake of that, we've really pivoted our strategy to working with sporting organizations, because we know that there's this constituency of athletes who want to see this happen. They're ready to go. And so now we're focused a lot more on working with their employers and helping sporting organizations understand how they can actually make the most of these incredible athletes that are ready to do the work and benefit from this big movement that's that's
1: coming. It's such a great case study and I think particularly the humble origins of it as you say 24 people well you've way outperformed there in typical athlete fashion I suppose but I suppose within that and maybe this is a, a, a great place to wrap up today's conversation I'm interested to know who you think does this well but if you can't name names what they're doing online, the actions they're taking that others can learn from. If it's out of the cool down or other work that you've been involved with, I think it's great to share those learnings.
0: Yeah, I mean, off the back of that, Footy for Climate was launched. Over 300 AFL players who are working across the game. They've got some really exciting projects coming up. We also saw the launch of Cricket for Climate, Pat Cummins Foundation, and there's been a lot of talk about the relationship with Cricket Australia and Alinta. But what doesn't get talked about, and I think is a real shame, is the amazing work that Pat and Cricket for Climate are doing, putting solar on local grassroots cricket clubs, getting girls' teams up and running, upgrading facilities. We've also seen the launch of No Second Place, which is an amazing sports marketing agency that will only take briefs that are for social good. I think there's a lot of great work that's emerging in the space. And it's a really exciting time to be a part of it
1: to hear about that positive momentum is such a positive place to finish and I think what if I can try and sum up what I've heard from you today and and maybe as a bit of a call to arms to organizations, it is that you know individuals do have stories to tell, they do have things they're passionate about, they do have things that they want to talk about publicly, and I think what I heard was let's start a constructive conversation. Make it an open dialogue, a safe environment for that to take place so that you can get to constructive outcomes. And we should be wrestling with this stuff today. Don't hide people you know, under the carpet. That's not constructive for the individual or for the organisation. It's about having that constructive dialogue. And I think recognising that for each individual, whether you're an athlete or whether you're an employee of a large organisation, you have your own career. You have your own brand. And the important thing today is to allow people to to harness that, use that rather than suppressing it because otherwise ultimately both the individual and the institution lose out if people aren't talking about these issues. So, Emma, it's been such a helpful and I think interesting conversation for me today to kind of, you know, compare these two worlds. So, I really appreciate your perspective. If people do have questions or encouragements from today's show, what's the best way for them to reach you?
0: We're kind of on all the platforms. We've got a brand new website, actually, that just launched last week. You can contact us there on LinkedIn, on Instagram. I say we're on all the platforms, but I don't think we're on Twitter anymore. So don't look for us there. That's
1: a big challenge. There's a lot out there these (laughs) days. (laughs) You get nothing done if you're across all of them. But yes, you can find you on the the main platforms, I understand. And check out the new website too. So go and have a look at Emma Pocock and Frontrunners. And Emma, thank you so much for sharing your insights on the Your Digital Reputation podcast.
0: Thanks for having me roger and thanks for what you're doing thanks again for listening if you've learned something from today's conversation please subscribe leave a review and share it with others for all show notes head to propelgroup.com.au thanks again for listening